Well, um, hello everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today we are very happy to have Mr. Arnold August with us. Uh, Mr. August is an author and a journalist living in Montreal. So welcome, Mr. August. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And once again, uh, thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on. So uh, let's jump straight into it over the question of Cuba right now, which is a very, very, a very controversial topic at the moment. So, uh, so interestingly, despite the disagreement, right? Yeah. So, so this, uh, despite the disagreement that the two U.S. parties have over internal politics, in foreign politics, the Biden administration isn't that dissimilar than the Trump administration. Uh, for instance, former uh, former Secretary of State uh, Pompeo put Cuba on the list of states sponsoring terrorism without a proper approval or review from the Congress. So, why didn't Biden remove Cuba from the list when he became president? Uh, that's a very good uh, loaded question. Thank you very much. I'd like to start, if you don't mind with the very first sentence in that question, so we can really take it apart, in which you mentioned the, uh, you know, the internal disagreements. Uh, I, I'm not sure that internal disagreements are really that important. Uh, it's a question of degree. I don't know if any, well, any of you saw the town hall with uh, Joe Biden on CNN with Don Lemon a couple of days ago. What did he say about the crucial issue that impacted the United States and the world, the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, the literal, you know, and the extreme violence by the police against Afro-Americans and others. What did he say? Well, he's not for defunding police. On the contrary, I want to increase funding for police. And of course, you get the usual platitudes. You want to take the bad apples out. Most of the police are okay and all that. So there's no real, uh, nothing really dissimilar there to take just one example. On the issue of um, uh, uh, um, being more or less aggressive than Trump, uh, this may surprise some people, but I said that during the elections, when everyone was really hanging on to Biden as the solution to Trump, when I said, watch out. It's very possible that Biden be, will be even more aggressive than Trump on international affairs. Why did I say that? How many times do we see him on TV saying, I'm not going to be soft like, like Trump is. I'm not going to be soft on dictators like President Xi of China or uh, Putin or the Castros in Cuba, Cuba or Maduro in Venezuela. I'm going to stand up to these dictators. So, you know, taken from taking from that, one can say, well, perhaps he's even going to be more aggressive. And that's the way things are going. When we get to Cuba later on, we will see how it actually has increased the sanction just yesterday against Cuba. So I just wanted to make this small caveat before going into the second part of that question was about Pompeo putting Cuba on the list of so-called state sponsors of terrorism. Uh, why did he do that? Uh, Pompeo did it specifically with regards to Venezuela. Now, in that resolution of the Secretary of State, Pompeo, just days before his mandate had ended, in it says, the second statement says, they are against Cuba because it supports the Maduro government. Now, what is interesting is that they have they have this in common. They, when you ask, why did Biden not take Cuba off the uh, state sponsors of the list of, of states sponsoring terrorism? It's very simple. Biden administration agrees with Trump that Cuba has to be pressured to release its moral and political support for Maduro. That, that is a very important point. Um, I, I think that um, I, I don't know if, we, if you recall when, when um, the uh, confirmation hearing in the Senate for Secretary of State Blinken just a few days before Biden was inaugurated. In that, I watched with the whole four hours. It's very, uh, it's really you know uh, a real eye opener. How behind the scenes, supposedly parties supposedly having different point of views, they actually in that Senate hearing of four hours, they actually worked out a bipartisan foreign policy. Take the issue 
of uh, the uh, state uh, uh, list of state sponsoring terrorism, which you raised during that four hours period. From the amongst the senators, such as Marco Rubio, right winger, uh, Bob Menendez, another right winger from the Democratic Party, they did not raise the issue with uh, Blinken. I hope, in a sense, I hope you're not going to take Cuba off the uh, list of states sponsoring terrorism. That you know, at the same time, Blinken did not mention. That list. In other words, they worked out a modus vivendi. They worked out some kind of a deal on the issue of Venezuela, on the issue of Cuba. They are going to follow the Trump administration with regard to these two countries. Well, that was a very, very, very thorough answer, very detailed. So, as a kind of a follow up to this, uh, well, you mentioned Menendez, you mentioned Rubio. They're both, yes. you know, um, one is a Democrat, one is a Republican. Exactly. So what do you think is the, like, what is driving the bipartisan consensus on Cuba? Well, I think uh, the, the, uh, the question is very important. I'd actually give a short background, if I may, on the issue of the elections, the last presidential elections. Uh, a lot of people are saying, oh, this, this is a historical elections. We're finally going to beat that fascist Trump and have Biden being put into power. But in my view, it was historical, that elections, but not as because what they are saying, they defeated a fascist Trump. It is historical because according to my reading of American history, which I've been doing a long time, this is the first time in American elections, you have two Republican parties vying out for power. Like, there was a whole important section of anti-Trump Republicans organized a call what is called what is called the Lincoln Project, who grafted on to the Biden administration to oppose Trump. Now, once, of course, Biden got elected, he has a debt to pay to these uh, anti-Trump Republicans. And so you have for the first time a real Republican Party. And I guess you would say the, Demo the so-called Democratic Party was a, a light version of Republican Party. So taking this into, into account, uh, everything else falls into place. For example, I think you mentioned uh, Cuba. Now, a lot of people have been saying, well, uh, Biden said, uh, promised that he's going to change, uh, he's going to reverse the uh, Biden administration's uh, 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 sanctions against Cuba dur during the uh, uh, pandemic and perhaps go back to the situation that existed before with Obama when Biden was vice president. But people, unfortunately, like I'm, I'm a, I really read these things in its original format. Now, when Biden says uh, we are going to review the uh, policy towards Cuba, he also says always taking into account our core values of democracy, human rights. Isn't that nice? So it's very convenient. Anytime they can declare, as they are doing now, there's that the so-called violation of human rights in Cuba. Well, this whole policy of going back to Obama uh, is, is no longer there. And uh, I, I think that he also said, as I mentioned before, just to, he said uh, he is going to, Biden is going to stand up to dictators like Castro. So we have to look at, you know, that, that promise he did keep, okay? Now, we have to look at what they actually said during the elections, not sort of do cherry picking what looks uh, good for us under the false notion that there is really a choice between these two parties that they're going to bring around major change. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, speaking of uh, uh, of Cuba, Venezuela, and uh, so-called state sponsor of terrorism, so the list, the SST list, was formally established in 1979 as part of the Export Administration Act. Uh, the latter of which, according to you, citing the Washington Post, uh, was quote uh, a legal clause intended to give the executive branch the ability to restrict exports, arms transfers, and other commercial uh, transactions. So end quote. Uh, and you also emphasize that the uh, act has the goal of strengthening the executive branch and not the Congress. So why is this uh, fact important? Well, it's important because obviously uh, when it was put into place, the uh, drafters of that legislation wanted to make sure that they could uh, uh, very quickly overnight 
declared in such and such a state is a so-called state sponsor of terrorism without going through the niceties of consulting the Congress and all that. So, you know, so this, this is basically what, what uh, why uh, this clause was there. At the same time, there is uh, the need, it's accepted by law, that if a, 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 com- if a, a government wants to uh, 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 nom- say that such such country is a state sponsor of terrorism, they have to notify the Congress. This is what Obama did during the uh, negotiations to establish diplomatic relations with Cuba. They have to notify the Congress, and with Congress has 45 days to say they agree or do not agree with that new designation. With regards to Cuba, the 45 days elapsed, and automatically uh, Cuba uh, was removed from the state sponsors of terrorism. But on that issue, let us just say, in, in any case, Trump did it without any consultation of anyone, stroke of a pen. So as I've written many times, and many people agree with me, well, if Biden, if Trump could designate Cuba as a terrorist state by the stroke of a pen, what is stopping Biden from removing Cuba from that list by the stroke of a pen? But the truth is, as I mentioned before, it may be hard to take for some people, but the Biden administration is as bad or even worse than the uh, uh, the Trump administration with regards to Cuba. I mean, uh, just uh, just yesterday, remember, everyone's at, we've been asking Biden, please remove the sanctions. There were over 240 sanctions uh, measures adopted by uh, 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 Trump during the four-year uh, mandate, most of which was in the conditions of uh, epidem- epidemic in Cuba as in other parts of the world. Uh, 240 people People said, well, you have to rescind those 240. Not only did Biden not rescind them, but yesterday, as a result of the so-called mass protests, we could deal with that later, a result as a that pretext Yesterday, Biden increased the sanctions against Cuba, and I guess we will. It's very far from removing those under Trump. He actually increased those sanctions against Cuba. So uh, we're in a very complicated and difficult situation with regards to Cuba, as well as with regards to to Venezuela. Right. So you mentioned the sanctions, right, and and what people are colloquially called the the embargo. So about that. The Export Administration Amendments of 1977 stipulated that no longer shall a country face U.S. export control due to its communist status. Uh, Instead, the U.S. said that they shall take into account the factors that a country's present and potential relationship to the U.S., so whether it's a friendly or hostile nation towards the U.S., right? So what is the implication of this amendment towards U.S. Cuba policy? Well, I'm glad that you I'm glad I'm glad that you caught that point. It's really important because on the surface surface it may seem to some oh United States is becoming more liberal. We are not going to designate a country to be a, a state sponsor of terrorism if it's uh, if it espouses communism. But what in fact it does it expands the uh, the possibilities for United States to put countries on the list of state of, of state sponsors of terrorism. If you look at the current list now, that is to, to include all kinds of countries, whether they're communists or not. If one looks at the current uh, list at this time, if I recall, it's Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Syria, Iraq, Libya, South Yemen, and Sudan. Now, it's interesting to know, bro, in that list, there are only two countries that support communism, Cuba and North Korea. Others do not. So that's why they change it to include more countries and not to restrict the use of uh, the, the definition of, of, of state sponsor of terrorism. Yeah, no. Right. So. <laughs> no, for more. You, you go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, actually. Actually, I mean, I think you, you, we were, I was going to ask, I mean, what, what was the rationale behind this, the, like this whole, uh, you know, I guess, uh, scheme, but you basically answered it. So I guess we can move on to your, um, your book, Democracy in Cuba. Yeah. So in your, in your book, you talk about 
U.S. centrism and uh, the perception of democracy based on the, the U.S. model. So what what we could call, I guess, from the age of enlightenment, like liberal democracy, right? Yeah. So could you define this concept for your listeners? And also, uh, as a side point earlier, you mentioned you used the word liberal. So for our audience, define what you mean by liberal. Okay, let's deal with the question of U.S. centrism. Uh, we can go into, <clears throat> sorry, some of the features of it, the detail. But I think the most important thing for our listeners to, to think about, reflect upon, that the very the foundation of U.S. centrism comes from the very beginning with the establishment of the 13 colonies. In which they said, look, we are the beacon on the hill to shine light upon the uh, on the world. We are the chosen people. So I, in my view, uh, no one can really understand uh, American foreign policy if one does that from the beginning to date. I mean, you know, uh, even worst situation of January 6, 2021, the assault on, on, on the capital and other days, the U.S. administration, CNN, they still managed to say, we are still a beacon for the world, for democracy, etc. So one has to get this, you know, racist, superior notion that only the United States are the ones who that can define democracy or whatever. Now, so that is the basic. If you if some if you grasp that, then everything else falls into place. Now, the United States has what they call a multi-party system. Okay, first of all, their constitution. You know, uh, was never discussed or deliberated upon by the people. It was imposed imposed on the people by a small uh, a clique of slave owners, and this is the same constitution that they have now, several centuries centuries later. Now, they have decided that the the model for democracy is when you have two or more political parties. Well. I don't want to, you know, if the United States wants to have uh, two political parties, that's up to them. But I know in the United States, I work very closely. I have very a lot of colleagues in the United States. And they have been, in, in fact, one of my books, I, I also mentioned that. They have been fighting against this notion that the you know, lesser of two evils. Every time there's election, people say, oh, they're the same. No, no, no. How about, you know, we should vote for the lesser of two evils. Last time, of course, it was Biden. Now we see, several months later, how lesser of a two evil was Biden compared to Trump when it comes to uh, Black Lives Matter movement, when it comes to foreign policy. So they impose uh, this notion you have to have multi-party system. Of course, they're very flexible. Uh, to Saudi Arabia, which doesn't have elections, you know, that doesn't have multi-party system. It's a, it's a monarchy. You know, that's okay. We could let that go. We could have good relations with Saudi Arabia or even Israel, which is known internationally as an apartheid state. That's okay. We could have good relations with Israel, but not with Cuba. It's a pretext uh, to, to use the fact that if Cuba has a so-called one-party system, you know, like I would not say, we can go on that later, but it's not that it has a one-party system. Cuba had a revolution that developed over several centuries, and out of that came their own new concept of what it, it means to be democracy, which we could deal with later on, if you like. Yeah, actually, we were getting, that was my next question. How would you define democracy in Cuba, like, in general? Okay, I would say, that, you know, just as I try to outline very shortly the U.S.-centric notion, Cuba... Like my, my view, if to evaluate a country, we cannot compare, for example, Cuba to the United States. We have to deal with Cuba and its own historical context. Cuba in the 19th century waged a, a war against uh, Spanish domination. And in the course of that war, they uh, established a revol one revolutionary party led by Jose Marti, who is a national hero of Cuba. They led that war successfully with one party that was able to uh, mobilize around itself an overwhelming majority of people to free 
Cuba from Spanish control. This is only came to a halt when in 1898, the United States, under the pretext of the USS Maine blowing up, came in so to so-called help the Cuban people. But in fact, they replaced Spain and colonized uh, Cuba once again. Now, Cuba basically led, led uh, was had some kind of, you know different aspects of, of dictatorship from 1950, 19, 1898 to the 1950s. An important historical event took place in 1953 when Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, Che Guevara, and others, they organized the first attempt against the Batista regime in 1953, the, you know, July 26, 1953. It failed, but at the same time, they came back later on in 19, 1957 and finally overthrow, overthrew the Batista dictatorship to have what I would say for the first time in its history, the Cuban people had power in its own hands as a result of the struggle. They actually participated in the struggle in the countryside when it finally triumphed in 1959. So I w- at, at that time, there was no there was no elections. There was no such thing as one or two parties in 1959. But the political power was in the hands of the people. I would characterize uh, Cuban democracy as real participatory democracy. In other words, they see it as their revolution, their democracy, their social system, which they ha- have been striving to develop despite all the odds, such as the blockade, right since 1959. They, uh, Cuba did not have elections until 1976, when uh, a new electoral law was passed. Uh, and only then did you have the, did you have elections take place. But it's an entirely different thing when we go into elections, I guess, later on in the program, how that operates, because it's a bit complicated. But the thing to keep in mind, Cuba is Cuba. They had their experience from the 19th century, and their own experience from 1953 to present. They have to be uh, taken into account based on their own experience and their, no, their own history, not with a false comparison to the uh, historical evolution of the United States. Actually, before we jump into the election question, uh, so, so you said mm-hmm. Cuban is a participatory democracy. So from what I heard, the, the, the Cuban constitution is uh, largely a product of discussion between citizens. So uh, there were yeah. around, I think, 6 million citizens uh, that uh, who participated in the writing of the constitution. And there were around like uh, 16,000 suggested amendments. Uh, additionally, the constitution yeah. was subjected to a referendum, which had a turnout of 98%. And uh, 97.7% of the uh, the uh, the people participated accepted the constitution so um so so what is your take on the absence of mainstream media here in the US or Canada or any other western country reporting on this of course they only report on what they want to report we had this example these examples in the last few weeks but but I'm glad that you raised the issue of the constitution uh, I followed very carefully. I was in Havana at the time when the discussions take place. And there's one feature I think uh, listeners should take this into account. It's often, it's said, or the Cubans portray as a great place. You know, there's no debate. People are afraid to, to speak. Uh, you know, based on my, you know, many years experience in Cuba living there, if there is a country in the world where there's a lot of discussion, debate, opposing points of view, I said, it's Cuba. And in the Constitution, it was quite an amazing uh, uh, example of Constitution, uh, of consultation led by the party, but in which the input from the people was enormous. Allow me to give you one example that may surprise you. In the draft Constitution that you're talking about, the, they made some change. Uh, the objective of the, uh, of the Cuban Republic public was no longer communism. They took that out. So there was a backlash against revolutionaries in Cuba saying, no, no, we want to keep it in there. We know that's far. That goal is very far. We're not there yet. But we don't want people to say outside, want people to say outside of ah, Cuba has given up communism. So actually, when it went back to the drawing board and the National Assembly, that that, uh, clause was reinstated that Cuba is still a country that seeks 
communism, and that it's based on Marxism Leninism. I can give you many other examples from the past as well. But let me give you one more example of participatory democracy that take, took place just a few days ago in the context of the so-called social unrest. Uh, you know, the July 11th took place. Uh, That's a very controversial thing. We could talk about it. But what happened on July 18th, six days later, a very important demonstration took place in Havana, organized by the government. 100,000 Cubans demonstrated in Havana on a Saturday, July 18th, to show their support for the uh, Cuban government. Uh, I was interviewed by Telesur and others. I said, this is an example of, of participatory democracy. And I jokingly said, thank you for the, the media reports that, that it was a government demonstration. I said, you know, it's the, the Cuban people do not exist if it's not part of the government. But I said, thank you, uh, thank you to this international media by saying that demonstration was a, a, a government demonstration. It proves my point that the government, along with 100,000 people, are together in this participatory democracy. And there are other examples kind of given in the past. There are many examples to show in terms of elections, in terms of uh, consultation, on reform, on, on bills, etc., how the Cubans participate directly in the legislation, new laws in Cuba. Okay, speaking of participatory democracy and continuing on to that point, actually, so, so talking about yeah. uh, election and uh, it being a part of participatory democracy, so uh, Noam Chomsky and Edward uh, S. Herman, writing in Manufacturing Crescent, uh, said there are basic preconditions to a free election in a country. So uh, things such as freedom of speech and assembly, freedom of the press, uh, freedom to organize and maintain intermediate economic, social and political groups, uh, for also freedom to form political parties, organize members, put forward candidates and campaign without fear of extreme violence. Uh, and five, the absence of state terror and the climate of fear among the public. Uh, so that was basically quoting from the book. And so the basic narrative right now in the mainstream media is none of these preconditions are met and that a Cuban is a one-man one man dictatorship uh, rule. So uh, so according to your research, how, how are those uh, preconditions uh, in Cuba? Well, I'm glad that you raised uh, Chomsky's writing on it because in the in currently I'm going through some reflection uh, on the issue of Chomsky. I was very uh, proud to have quoted uh, Chomsky, one of my books on how he explains how the mass media operate by allowing only those journalists who know what to say that pleases the elite. I quote that. Now, at the same time, I also have doubts about Norman, Norman Chomsky on various issues. I don't think anyone should be considered like a king, a philosopher king. For example, I have uh, much less respect for Chomsky since the last two American elections, where there was a massive move by the uh, revolutionary left, Afro-Americans, others, Jews, even, and Green Party, which is there as progressive, it's not here in the United States, in, in Canada. They uh, were saying, no, we do not fall for the lesser of two evils. Let's vote for a third alternative to undo that historical trend. Now, in 2016... Chomsky, rather than supporting that movement, uh, voted, uh, suggested to vote for Hillary Clinton. Just recently, once again, with regards to a Biden versus Trump, he also said people should vote for Biden. So in my view, you know, he has a lot, lot to his credit and to what, what, he, what he writes about and what he said. But I think his view on the elections in the United States it, he does a lot of, of damage. And, you know, of course, the way he describes what elections are, I mean, even though he says that he's against U.S.-centric notions of democracy and all that, he basically repeats the preconceived views with regards uh, to democracy, freedom of the press and all that. So, so if you say that those preconditions that uh, I just listed out and uh, which come from Chomsky and Herman's uh, book, uh, so, so if those preconditions, according to you, are US-centric, so what are the, the conditions like in Cuba for, for election? Well, they have political system, even though it is far from perfect, but it responds to its own reality. 
Firstly, in Cuba, everyone 16 years and older has the right to vote, right from the beginning. And that came from the 19th century experience in the liberated territories, again, Spain, where they actually carried out elections, reform uh, 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 of education, etc., in that period. Now, since then, the 1959, the Constitution, which the Cubans are proposing in 1976, you have, what is the role of the party? The party does not participate in elections. That's the overall uh, misconception that is presented by the mass media. Let me uh, just, do we want to go into this now? One or two examples of how elections democracy takes place in Cuba? Yeah, yeah. Please, um, uh, are we into that yet? Okay, so I, I know one of your questions is like how people are elected to the, how the municipal assemblies are established, how people vote to uh, have delegates in the municipal assemblies. Why? Because according to law, and this is unique, no other country has it, according to law, half of the deputies elected to the National Assembly have to come from the municipal assembly, and they have the right to vote for one of these three different candidates. And the party affiliation is not an issue there. And once these elections take place, then these people are elected to the municipal assembly. Now, to get to the National Assembly, when the National Assembly uh, takes place, the election, there's uh, mass organizations which will choose from amongst those elected in, in, in that direct grassroots elections, nomination and elections at the grassroots level, amongst those elected to the different ma municipal assemblies, as well as other mass organizations such as university students, colleges, farmers, workers, until they come up with another list for elections to the National Assembly. And then voting takes place, and on the ballot box, you have several candidates, and people have a right to vote for one, two, or three candidates. Now, uh, in order to be elected to the National Assembly, the person has to have at least 50% of the vote. And once this is established, the new National Assembly uh is uh, is established, and this is followed. I think this you have one of your questions. This is followed by the elections to the Council of State. How do the elections can, of the Council of State take place? The National Assembly meets, half of which are delegates from the municipal assembly grassroots, and the other half are personalities from across the country. Now, in a secret ballot vote, they would vote for the new Council of State. Okay. And then the Council of State meets and they would vote for one person to be the president of the Council of State. Now, then the uh, president of the Council of State uh, becomes the, uh, you know, the uh, president of the Council of State. But there's another election, this is new, also voting for the president of the Republic, in this case, Miguel Diaz-Canel. So you have your president uh, uh, of the sort of the government. Council of State, and you also have President of the Republic. And, you know, I think the most important thing is, aside from these structures, watching the events taking place in Cuba over the last few months, how Cubans have been struggling in the, in the, in the, in the context of the pandemic, the crippling sanctions, uh, and all other uh, pressures against them, they, watching Miguel Diaz-Canel in action, he has very close ties with the people. You can't really say he's separate. When, when, when the initial uh, sort of uh, outbreak took place on July 11th in San Antonio de los Baños, just uh, west of Havana, on July 11th, he actually went there. He went there and he talked to the people. And we saw that on TV. He said, look, I spoke to the people. There are people, even revolutionaries are con confused. And we have to deal with some of the, the things that, that people are being raised. But at the same time, he was very clear, we cannot accept vandalism. We cannot accept delinquent behavior by some of them. And of course, some of these people who infiltrated into this uh, uh, these actions actually called for uh, uh, 
more sanctions by United States against Cuba and also calling for, for, for United States to actually invade Cuba, to liberate Cuba from, from the Castro. So I've been watching this for a long time. You, you, there's something difficult to quantify, but the close ties between the government and the people is something that we don't see, especially in a country such as Canada. Right, and uh, actually, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the protests now. So, uh, the protests that are happening currently uh, in 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 Cuba, uh, it's a rare moment where Cubans there are, there are Cubans who are protesting against the, the government, and it's it, it doesn't usually happen. So, President Biden said that uh, the U.S. stands firmly with the people of Cuba, as they said they assert their universal rights. Uh, however, there there was also uh, I'm sure you saw the Miami mayor. Who, uh, who who called for airstrikes in Cuba, who yeah. said if I was, uh, <laughs> to quote clearly, said that um, we should leave that option on the table, right? Right. right. And and uh, there were also several outlets, like the, the Gray Zone, who said that the anti-government protests were CIA-driven, as they usually say that they are. But um, all, all that, you know, to, together, what is your reaction towards this conversation happening in the U.S.? Well, the thing is, in the United States and also in Canada, it's pretty much the same as far as the mainstream media is concerned. The the cover, coverage of that, it completely uh, inflates, exaggerated, exaggerates the so-called mass participation, while it completely ignores the American blockade of Cuba going on for 60 years, which creates havoc. Uh, like, I don't. We. I don't think we can call these mass demonstrations. They're very small in several cities. Okay. Now let me give you one example. It. They try to portray it as something that is very popular. Let me. I participate in an article with uh, Mint Press uh, on this, and we have a photograph of a, a mass demonstration in Havana, in front of the Maximo Gomez Monument in Havana. And they and the mass media say this is an anti-government demonstration. But there's one there's one problem, bro, and that is in that dem- in that demonstration we clearly see flags of July 26 movement, which is Fidel Castro's movement. So obviously it was a pro-government demonstration, and they try to uh, make it look like an anti-government demonstration. Allow me to give you one other example, perhaps even more obnoxious. In Fox News, they had an interview with Ted Cruz. Now, in the backdrop to that interview, they had scenes from Havana saying that this is an anti-government demonstration. Now, they blurred out the signs that people were holding, signs that read, streets belong to the people and long live the socialist revolution. They blurred that out from the signs and they presented as a anti-government demonstration. There are many other examples. They even show photographs uh, 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 of uh, Egypt, which has a similar, and Cairo, which has a similar seawall as in Havana, trying to say this is the millions of people who are uh, demonstrating against the Cuban government. Now, of course, there are some people in these cities who honestly participated because of grievances. But the main thing is, and I agree fully with uh, all of us who have been studying it in detail. This whole thing was worked out uh, by uh, agents who are paid by the United States, both in Spain, um, Miami, and elsewhere, using Twitter, you know, bots, and, and a very sharply, uh, using very sharply, for example, the hashtag SOS Cuba, so that it, in such a way with hundreds and hundreds of recently created Twitter accounts, bots, logarithms, would just repeat the same thing to the extent that SOS Cuba became a trending topic on July 11th. And then based on these false images that they show, the impression is giving that the Cuban people, the majority of Cuban people, are revolting against the Cuban government. And thus, the United States has to come in and, and Trudeau made similar statements as well, by the way. The United States has to come in and help the Cuban people to overthrow this communist dictatorship. So I think the bottom line is, yes, there are grievances, of course. I mean, you know, 60 years of blockade, you know, pandemic, uh, more sanctions by, by Trump. Of course there are problems. But the Cuban people, normally if they are 
dissatisfied. They're not, they don't demonstrate as such. There are other ways for them to take into account. They would ask the, these people who organized the demonstration, uh, you know, the SOS Cuba types who are linked to the United States, why did they not present themselves for elections in the municipal assembly? You know, they, they have a right to do so, but they don't. They, they do not want to improve the political system. They want to destroy it. So my reading is, yes, there are people who have some definite grievances and did go out to march for the first time. They, normally, it is not done in Cuba. But the whole thing, the, the main narrative is driven by Twitter and Twitter and those who are involved directly with Twitter. And, you know, they're talking now, uh, shamelessly. I saw this yesterday, uh, or the day before on CNN Fox that saying, Oh, there are, pri- there are prisoners that people have disappeared. This is, there's no, no evidence at all. Now I did watch a, a, a footage in Cardenas in the province of Matanzas of people, these individuals actually delinquent throwing stones a building, they even burned down part of a hospital. You know, delinquency. Now, this is not freedom of expression. Any country in the world would not allow people to attack public property. So they are trying to present these people who have been arrested for this public damage, for these uh, delinquent acts, as being poor prisoners of conscience. Right. Uh, You mentioned grievances, like people, protesters, that some protests were genuinely because of of grievances. Uh, However, it's a very common story um, in in the U.S. and even all the way here in Canada, but especially if you go to, you know, South Florida, Miami, that that kind of area of dissidents, of Cubans who um, escaped communism. So that that the Americans, it's a very uh, uh, common story that, that, that we all hear. And um, actually, I'm, I'm sure you, 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 since you've done your study in this um, in this field, you you know about the Bay of Pigs invasion and yeah. a lot of the the, the Bay of Pigs, um, the the CIA trained um, militias uh, were Cuban exiles. They were people who, who escaped from from Cuba after the Castros took over. So, why do you think these people people fled? Were they fleeing the, the communist government or what, what, what exactly were they, fl- were they fleeing? And all the way to this day, there are Cuban dissidents that you will see march and, and as yeah. Cuba actually. Yeah. Well, uh, bro and Henry, you know, Cuba had a revolution that succeeded 1959. One of the first things did Fidel and the others did was to honor their program. And they started to nationalize huge hacienda, huge farms, and divided into smaller lots for the peasants who tilled them. Also nationalized many uh, banks and financial institutions, petroleum. At the same time, when they nationalized uh, some of these entities, such for example, those belonging to Canadians, they gave compensation. But the Americans did not accept compensation. So those people who fled were the Batista, uh, those who were uh, favored and supported by Batista, very wealthy in the rural and urban areas. So they fed because they lost their millions of dollars and their, their, their ability to completely enrich themselves without any consideration for the vast majority of the people. So th- that's what they fled. When they say they fled communism, well, I guess it's partly true, but because this communism or Fidel's movement was the, was the very uh, movement that started to change the entire situation in Cuba where people were able to have free health, free education, and infrastructure, and many other culture, sports, you name it, you know, and so they fled because their privileged position was lost. And there's not Cuba, they have no right to try to interfere in Cuba to give themselves that territory back to themselves. Mm. So do you believe that the, I mean, that that's well, well documented, well reported that the post revolution purges and, you know, firing squads and so on were, necess- were necessary evil after the, the revolution of Castro? Yeah, in fact, uh, it, this will be coming up uh, another coming out in another book that we're publishing very shortly. But when Fidel Castro, he came to Montreal in April 1959. Not many people know that. Right after the revolution, invited by a Quebec uh, 
uh, business people. And then at that, uh, on that day, uh, in, in uh, 1959, in April, CBC went out to the streets of Montreal, I saw, I saw that put it, asking people, what do you think about Fidel Castro? You know, at the, at the time, there was a lot of discussion about firing squads and things like that. Well, most of the people, you know what they said? This was unrehearsed. They're not people on the streets. Well, look, Cubans had a hard time because of these people. And I think Fidel Castro is right. He has to clean up the situation. He's absolutely right. There was actually sympathy in the streets of Montreal for Cuba, you know, uh, uh, putting these people to trial and when necessary were executed. So this is, uh, you know, as part of life. And, and I think it's only normal. You know, Batista killed over 20,000 people while he was in power. Even John F. Kennedy said, we, ki- we killed 20,000 people. And so the Cubans had every right in 1959, 1960. And this was as a result of the amount of the people, the people whose relatives were killed by Batista. So we want to catch these people, put them on, on trial, and if necessary, they should be executed. So it's, it's part of the revolution. Mm, yeah, I mean it's not unique to the Cuban Revolution. After every revolution, generally there is a, there are there's a lot of violence and executions. It's mm. it's kind of par for the course. I don't think it's it's unique to the Cuban. But but actually, uh, back to the you know to, to today the protests that are happening uh, right at this moment. So there there were obviously people like the Mayan mayor who said that that uh, that we have to extract Cuba because of. Uh, they're protesting against communism, but there are many outlets, you know, such as the Gray Zone or the Belly of the Bees, that reported that they just wanted the basics. Most protesters just wanted the basics. So, how much blame does the government actually have in not providing the basics for these people? Well, I think the the basics is a pretty uh, large term. Like this, despite the pandemic, despite you know, the the, the uh, what do you call it? the the sanctions against Cuba. Uh, and the pandemic together closed down its main industry, the tourist industry. And so that was a, a huge amount of loss for the income of the Cuban people. Now, in that situation, my view is, and the view of the, my colleagues who I speak with in Havana, that despite this, the Cuban government has been trying to do its best to uh, maintain the living standards of the Cuban people. At the same time, one cannot deny the situation is terrible. People now have to wait long lines in order to get food at the grocery store. One of the reasons they have to wait so long is it's not like here, only one or two or three people are allowed in the um, in the uh, different in the stores in order to buy the food. At the same time, uh, Miguel Diaz Canal, the president, uh, and others are saying we have to take this seriously, and we have to improve the situation as much as we can. And they did make some changes, for example, allowing uh, uh, food before food was not allowed to be imported from uh, Florida into Cuba. Now it is allowed to be imported. They are making some changes. But I would say the, 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 the you know, what people are calling the basic necessities, it is not the fault of the Cuban government that the basic necessities are, are not being uh, met. We can never, in my, we can never take the, we can never take our finger off the Cuban blockade. For example, you probably know this, bro. You study the history. In 1960, when the blockade was established by Mallory, Subsecretary of State, he said, "This is not me describing." He said, "We have to impose sanctions in order to make the life." of the people, miserable, the economic situation, and dissatisfaction to such an extent that the people will revolt against the Cuban government. So I don't think it is fair to evaluate the Cuban situation without taking into account their own stated value, uh, stated position, to force the Cubans into misery so they revolt against the Cuban government. But even under these conditions, on July 11, 2021, it was not a revolt against the Cuban government. There were isolated incidents all across the United States, all across Cuba. It's true. But it, well, a small minority in there who are, we know, are paid by the United States, spends millions of dollars a year to pay these people in order to create incidents, 
even if it includes looting, in order to create an atmosphere uh, 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 of a chaos. And what Biden said, Cuba is a failed state. So we have to make a clear distinction uh, between people who want things to improve, you know, that grievance will be met, and those who are there in order to create an incident to provide the United States to interfere, if it's not militarily, in other ways as well. Yeah, speaking of uh, conditions and grievances, so I think uh, why the Cuban protest right now has such uh, a great attention is not only because of the mainstream media's focus on, on Cuba as a quote-unquote uh, felt state, but also because uh, th- this kind of protest is very, very rare in Cuba. I think the last time it was in 1994 uh, due right. to an economic crisis. So do you think, uh, do, do you see some parallels between this protest and the last one and how the mainstream media are reacting and what are the grievances? I think I think it's an important point. Yes, it's true what you say, and read that the last one took place in 1994, but it was very small compared to what happened on July 11, 2021. Uh, I, I I saw an interesting uh, reporter from Telesor uh, just by accident interviewed a bystander in Havana, a, a young person about your age. Uh, asking him, what do you think about the situation? And his response was very interesting. Well, he, of course, uh, recognized that a lot of them, that those, there were vandals who are paid agents who there to create an incident as a pretext. You know, say. At the same time, he said, we have to ask also why some of the poorest sections of the Cuban society joined in this demonstration. And he said, this is an important time for reflection in the Cuban society and the Cuban political system in order to improve the situation. So that's how Cubans are talking. When I speak to my colleagues on the phone, they say pretty much the same thing. No one denies that there are problems. No one denies that Cuba has its own problems, its own way of doing things which are not directly connected to, to the, uh, to the, um, to the blockade. I mean, Miguel Diaz Canal, right from the said, we have to do our own self-criticism. We have to improve things. So I guess you could say those who are out in the street brought this out into the open. But at the same time, it would be wrong to think that this was a revolt against the uh, Cuban government as the mass media and Canada and the United States has pointed out. I mean, since the uh, July 18th mass meeting in Havana, uh, 100,000 people, Miguel Diaz, things have been very calm in Cuba, you know. People are taking stock of the situation. And as the Cuban government said, we have to keep on fighting to reduce COVID-19, which is still hitting Cuba very much. We have to work out how to, despite the situation, have better distribution of food and other necessities of the people. But, you know, the main thing is the blockade. 60 years blockade. That really takes a toll on the psychological, social, political economic fabric of a society. That's a long time. What you just heard was uh, the part one of our interview with Mr. Arnold August. Part two will be coming very soon this Friday, so we hope you keep an eye out. Additionally, Mr. August's books are on sale with the code CUBA20 in Canada as well as August20 in the United States. You can go to the link in the description below at Fernwood Publishing to buy it if you are interested. Uh, Otherwise, uh, see you on Friday.